It is usual at this meeting to you to read a portion of scripture. And those of you who are listening to this tape recording, if you care to join us, will you read with us Hebrews chapter 11. At our last meeting, we were considering that which is a characteristic of all the callings of God in Scripture, that it was a holy calling. And we reminded ourselves how difficult it is for us or anyone to really encompass what is implied by the word holy. We use the word righteous, we use the word just, we use the word true in everyday conversation. But very seldom do we use the word holy without referring directly to God and his word. <clears throat> well now, this time, we're turning our attention to what is called in Hebrews chapter 3, the heavenly calling. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1 reads, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. Here we have a heavenly calling. And the word heavenly is distributed in this epistle to the Hebrews in such a way as to make it worthwhile connecting the passages together first of all. So we have here, first of all, the uh, chapter one, uh, chapter 3 verse 1, where we have the heavenly calling. Chapter 6, verse 4, we read, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. So that the gifts in the early church were anticipations of the day that was coming the heavenly gift were called powers of the word of the world to come. Verse 5. And then we have in chapter 8, verse 5 of Hebrews, it speaks about the heavenly priesthood in contrast with an earthly. For if it were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing there are priests that offer gifts according to the law who serve under the example and shadow of heavenly things. So here we have a hint that those things which were ordained by God and put into operation under the law were after all shadows. Shadows of heavenly things. The heavenly things being the reality. Chapter 9, 23. Verse 22 says, And almost all things are by the law. That's the shadow purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And in chapter 11, 16, which we've read together just now, but which we, we must include, and now they desire a better country, which is an heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them 
a city. And finally, in chapter 12, 22, Ye are not come to Mount Sinai, but ye are come to Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and so on. So that you see there is an insistence in this epistle to the Hebrews of the heavenly realities which were foreshadowed in Old Testament times, uh, but now are open in their perfectness to those who were believers at this time. Well now the next thing is, <coughs> we must distinguish between the earthly calling, which we find in the Old Testament, and the calling which places us, who are believers in Christ, far above all heavens where Christ sits at the right hand of God. This one is in the middle. It is heavenly in relation to the promises in the earth, but it is not super heavenly, it is not far above all heavens. So, as I've had to say to some folks so many times, before ever you start dealing with details, just discover, first of all, what calling is in view. And then when you've got that, you're halfway towards understanding the rest of it. Well, now I think it would be wise, seeing we want to help one another as best we can, if we first of all realise something of the insistence upon the earthly calling. If you look at Hebrews 11, where it emphasises the heavenly calling, it first of all introduces us to the earthly. Hebrews 11, chapter, uh, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. Now that refers to a place, and that place was here upon earth. The heavenly calling has to do with something that was subsequent to that. If we ask, how did Abraham know about the heavenly Jerusalem? Well, don't ask me, I don't know. How did Noah know about the coming of a flood? Well, it says he was warned of God. When there's no Bible for a person to read, God hasn't got his hands tied. He can speak to the hearts and consciences of his people, and he did so in those early days. We are not so placed. We have the written scriptures, and although God may speak to our hearts and consciences, as he may do at different times, we find our basis here in that which is recorded. So here we have Abraham coming out of Ur of the Chaldees and being given an inheritance. Now I think it would be worthwhile if we turn back for a moment and get this before us in the uh, book of Genesis. Chapter 12 is where we get the first movement. Or the first movement was really in chapter 11 where Terah took Abraham. Terah was the interfering person and Tiddy died, Abraham was rather tired and couldn't move. First one of chapter 12. Now, the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. There's no possibility of making that land mean all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, or even the heavenly Jerusalem. Abraham went out to go to a land called Canaan. It says um, in verse... Um, 
tribes. He went, they went forth to go into the land of Canaan. And into the land of Canaan they came. There was a hold up, which gave the devil the opportunity to get the Canaanites in the land. But they went out to go to the land of Canaan, and to the land of Canaan they went. Well then if we turn our attention a little further to chapter 13, we shall read these words, verse 14. And the Lord said unto Abraham, after that lot was separated from him, You see, God has conditions, and you can't, can't play fast and loose with those conditions. God said, Leave your father's house, leave your relatives, come out and I will show thee the land, and God didn't show it to him. Until he obeyed. He partly obeyed. But the moment he left Lot, and the Lord said unto Abraham, After that Lot, was separated from him. Lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art northward, southward, eastward and westward for all the land which thou seest to thee will I give it and to thy seed forever. That's the earthly calling and there's no possibility of making it mean anything which is parallel to a spiritual calling or the church. It means what it says. And so it says in verse 17, Arise, walk through the, the land in the length of it, and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. So it was a literal land that he could walk through, and if that's not sufficient for us, we find at the end of chapter 15, verse 18, And in the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying unto thy seed, Have I given this land? And now you've got the type of deed. If any of you have the deeds of a house or property, you will find that it is bounded on the north by Mr. So-and-so's house and on the west by a road that's called so-and-so. It's got its, got its boundaries in the deed. This is a deed, just as surely as the one that you may possess. In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land. Now it's not less undefined. From the river of Egypt, Unto the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenites, and the Kenizzites, and the Cadmonites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Rephaites, the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Gergeshites, and the Jebusites. And if you couldn't find that land after that definition, well, you wouldn't be able to find your way about at all, would you? This is specific. So that's the earthly calling. Now, Abraham, had stepped out, and it says in chapter 15, um, verse 6, I believed in the Lord, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now that gift of the land was Abraham's. He couldn't lose it. There were no other, dip, no other responsibilities. He had believed God, and God said, I've called you, I've committed this to you, that's yours. But there's something about God which is very wonderful. He will never give you less than he promised. But he may always have something in reserve to give you more, if only you will believe him. So, Abraham had got this calling. But we come back again now to the epistle to the Hebrews. Uh, before we do that, however, go a bit further and look at the epistle of James. Now, there are some folks who say that James is in opposition to the Apostle Paul. 
Because the Apostle Paul emphasises that the just shall live by faith. Justification by faith without works. But James comes along and says, Abraham was justified by works, and they say he's contradicting. Well, friends, if folks would cease criticising the Bible and exercise a bit of gumption, they would discover that Paul preaches from Genesis 15 and James preaches from Genesis 22. And you say, what's the difference? Friends, what's the difference? Genesis 15, a man stands before God and God says, can you count the stars? He said, no, Lord. He said, well, so shall thy seed be. And he believes it. That was wonderful enough. But Genesis 22, he said to that same man, Abraham, take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, and offer him up to me. And the man did it. The angel stayed there, of course, but in his heart he was ready now to go the whole length. So when you read James, this is what it says. Verse 21, chapter 2. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works? And by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which said, Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. It was fulfilled. It wasn't an empty statement. You couldn't doubt that man believed God after that, could you? So there's no contradiction. James is only speaking about a profession, which is on the surface. And he says, you show me your faith, I'll show you my works. And he gives the illustration, if somebody comes to your door and is destitute and wanting food, and you say very politely, oh, be ye warmed and be ye fed, and give them nothing. Well, what's the good of that? So you see, the word is perfectly. If you look at James 1, he says, um, Verse 3, knowing this, the trying of your faith, worketh patience. Let patience have a perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. And you know we've had it so many times, the word perfect here doesn't mean getting better and better. It means taking a thing to its logical end, going right on to the end. And it's the word that we get in Hebrews in contrast to a babe. It is translated, those who are full grown. They are perfect. That doesn't mean to say I'm more perfect than somebody here who's only half grown in age, but it means to say you've attained some goal. Well, now we come back to Hebrews 11 for a moment. Hebrews 11. And it might be of interest, while I'm about it, to drop the suggestion, which I can't uh, develop in this tape recording, that there's a wonderful pattern in this Hebrews 11. If you will notice, there are seven, or I'll mention by name, the last one being a woman, Sarah. Then there's a stop and a comment. Then there are seven more mentioned by name, and the last one being uh, Rahab, the harlot. Then there's a stop. And then he says, I haven't got time to tell you anymore, and sure enough, he gives you another seven. So you have three sets of seven who give this exhibition of faith. And you know, when you come to chapter 12, it says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, and that refers to these witnesses of chapter 11, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, 
and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, not merely looking, but looking away. Looking away from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, and all those shadows to the reality. Here we have perfection. And those of you who know the composition of life, you know that we have the seven colours of the rainbow, and they all together make up white light. Which was attracted by the red and the blue and the green first. And then you wake up to the fact that all the wonder of Abraham's faith, all the wonder of Joseph's faith, all the wonder of Isaac's offering, all gathered up in perfection in Christ. So we've got that there. Well, that's just in passing. Now we come back again to Hebrews 11, <coughs> and we notice that it says, verse 1, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And there's a strong emphasis on this element of faith here, of enduring as seeing him that is invisible, something which is beyond the mere walking through a land and the breadth of it and the length of it and all the boundaries of it which anybody could see. This was something that might be challenged by people who hadn't got their eyes open. That's the character of this new moon. Now, most of us know, but I must make sure that everyone does, that this word substance was in actual use in the days of the Apostle Paul and has been found in the papyrus and it was used for the title deeds of a property. Now, a property is in view. There's a man who's given up everything and he's even giving up the land of promise because he had respect to a higher and a heavenly city. What was his guarantee? Faith is the title deeds of things hoped for. If you'd have said to Abraham, well, this is a bit of a come down for you. You had a fine house in Ur of the Chaldees and the ruins of Ur of the Chaldees have struck the archaeologists as being very up to date in many of the things. Abraham would have did a little smile and he says, yes, I've got the title deeds of a heavenly city. I'm quite content to live in a tent. I didn't mean that, but it's come out, hasn't it? That's a good one, isn't it? Because the word tabernacle is misleading. To speak about a tabernacle in the ordinary way, we think of that marvellous structure in the wilderness with its golden furniture, with its tapestries and so on. Well, don't think Abraham was living in that. He was living in just a tent. But he was content because he had that in view, the higher thing. So if you will look at verse 6, it says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is. Well, that's obvious, isn't it? If you don't believe there is a God, well, you can't do anything about it. As it's been said about the man who was an atheist. When at last he did feel thankful, he didn't know who to thank, poor wretch. It says here, For he that cometh to God must believe that he is. But he adds a bit, and he is the rewarder. Now that belongs to Hebrews. That's not merely a character of God that you lift out and say to anybody. Because reward is in this chapter. If you'll glance over to verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Well, he must have had an offer, friends. I've never refused to be adopted by the royal family. I can't boast about that because it's simply not possible. But Moses was brought up by an Egyptian princess 
and by the process of adoption, he may have become heir to the throne. Quite a number of the pharaohs and quite a number of the Roman emperors were adopted into the family because they poisoned one another and beheaded one another and whatnot. He was Moses. And his name, he had a great name in Egypt. So what did he do about it? He refused. Why? Choosing. He chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Don't think he gave anything up, friends. He had his eye on the real thing. Esteeming. This is his estimate. Esteeming the reproach of Christ. And that doesn't mean the reproach of Christ to him. It's a reproach that's connected with Christ. Esteeming the reproach associated with Christ. Greater riches than the treasures in Egypt and recent archaeological finds have staggered us by the wealth that belonged to ancient Egypt. Isn't it, in one of the Gilbert and Sullivan's, it says, when everyone walks in cloth of gold, up goes the price of shoddy. But they had gold there in abundance. And Moses was living in that very period. And he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense, the recompense, the thing that balanced of the reward. So this man could write, Paul could write to the Romans, and he said, the light affliction, or to the Corinthians, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. You see, it's come out again. If Moses had his eye glued on the things which were seen, he would have been ensnared. But he had a faith that this is in beyond, and he endured, it says here, as seeing him that is invisible. That's verse 27. Well, now the next thing which is said about him, we go back on our story, verse 9, by faith, he sojourned. He sojourned. Now this word means to be a stranger or a foreigner, and the word is followed by the word strange, as in a strange country. Now, it would have been quite right if I've ever taken the attitude and says, God has called me to this land, he's given me by oath, well, if I believe him, surely I'll accept it. So he puts a fence round so many acres or miles of it, and then he says, when my son grows up, he'd have the next, and we'd inherit this. And that would have been an act of faith. But apparently, just as God could warn Noah, so God could reveal something to Abraham that changed the whole point of view. So now we're discovering that the heavenly calling is not the basic thing. It's the added thing. Now, I had first of all felt that we ought to read together in this meeting Revelation chapter 2 and 3, but it's pretty long, so I changed my mind. But if you read chapters 2 and 3, each address to each church is to him that overcometh. To him that overcometh, will I grant to sit with me in my throne? even as I overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. 
To him that overcometh will I grant right to the paradise of God. To him that overcometh will I write upon him the name of the heavenly Jerusalem which comes down from heaven. And each church have these words, I know thy works, I know thy works, seven times over. You see, this is going beyond the faith that just believes. This is where James comes in, he says, yes, and his works manifested as a faith was a reality. So friends, while we stand absolutely four square on the scriptures, that our salvation is not of works, it wouldn't be a bad plan if when we quote Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, I think it is, if we just casually looked at 9 and 10, because it says in Ephesians 2, it's not of works, but it is unto works. So we haven't got to be afraid of good works, so long as we don't make them the basis of our salvation. It's like, first of all, having the root in the ground, which is absolutely necessary at first, and then the fruit on the tree. So now we have this emphasis in Hebrews 11 of something over and above the first step of faith. You remember in Second Timothy, he says, if we died with him, we shall live with him. Well now, every one of you who knows that when Christ died, you were reckoned to have died with him, the price is paid, the ransom accepted, God can justify you without compromising himself. That is unalterable. You cannot be lost. For your salvation doesn't depend on anything you've done. It depends on the finished work of Christ. All you've done is to accept it. But Second Timothy adds, if we died with him, we shall live. If we suffer, or better still, if we endure, we shall reign with him. But reigning with him is just the added thing. Reigning with him is the reward. Always oh, as if you deny him, he'll deny you of that reward, but he cannot deny himself. You're saved, and that's completely finished. Or to have it all over again. 1 Corinthians says, Other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's finished. But take heed how you build on it, so your building, not the foundation, but your building, is going to be tested. And your works, subsequent to salvation, may go up in smoke. You may be building gold, silver, costly stones, or you may be building wood, hay, stubble, and the fire is going to test it. Your fire is not going to test your salvation. That's yours. It's going to test whether you're going to have any reward for your work. So it says, you yourself should be saved, yet so was by fire. So there's no doubt that your salvation is perfectly secure. So when you hear people all joyfully singing and dancing about they're all going to wear a crown, you just say to yourself, hmm, I wonder. It's one thing to have joy of our salvation, the perfect gift of God. It's another thing to say to the Apostle Paul, not as though I were already perfect, Oh no, he said, oh no, I'm conscious there's many a slip. But by the time he reached this last epistle, he said, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith, henceforth a crown. He got the assurance at last. But when he wrote Philippians, he said, not as though I were already perfect. 
He says, I'm running. There is always a possibility of slipping. I don't know whether you notice in chapter 12 for a moment that the only reference to the cross of Christ in the epistle to the Hebrews, strangely enough, has to do with a race and a crowd. You see, it's the death of Christ and the shedding of his blood which is stressed with regard to the basis of our salvation. And the cross is introduced, even in the early chapters of Matthew, of enduring shame, taking up your cross and following him. And the cross is the added dignity that the world piled on to the freely offered Son of God. So this is something that you may be up against. So he says, looking, oh let us run with patience the race that is set before us. That's the same word which is translated in 2 Timothy 4, I have fought a good fight. I have contested a good contest. This is the race. Looking off unto Jesus, the author or captain and finisher or perfecter, one who took it right to the end of faith. It's one thing to be a beginner, that's the author. But the Apostle says it's another thing to be a finisher, that's the perfecter. It's one thing to have started, it's another, another thing to have touched the tape at the end. Your salvation doesn't depend upon whether you run and touch the tape at the end, but your reward does. So all the time, you see, we're differentiating between the hope of our calling and the prize of the calling. And so we emphasise it here. Looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. That's where the cross comes in, in Hebrews. For the joy set before him in connection with running a race and receiving the reward at the end. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your mind. So we are trying to bring before you as far as we can the fact that we are dealing not with the primary basic gift of eternal life. We are dealing with the subsequent calling and the possibility of receiving a reward. Now there are some people of course who are so very, very holy and so very, very high-minded that they sniff at the idea of doing anything for a reward. But you watch out for them, friends. They sometimes change their mind at an inconvenient moment. But Moses, he didn't hide the fact that he was willing to let everything go in Egypt for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. And God has made it known that he is not only God, he is, but he's a rewarder. So while we do not say we're going to do anything to earn our salvation, we cannot. Let us rejoice that God has says, and you will not give a cup of cold water in my name without it being recognised. That's what God says. I think we better believe that, don't you too? That he doesn't let these things pass. They're all known, recorded by him. And so we've got this emphasis upon the fact that Abraham came out, was willing to be a stranger in the very land of promise, and Isaac and Jacob together with him. And then it tells you the reason why, which we read just now. For he looked for a city which hath foundations. 
And the way it's put there is, he'd already come to the conclusion that there were no other cities on the earth that had got any foundations. Or they may have been built on granite or rock or concrete or iron girders or whatnot, but he didn't mean that. Or he said there is one city that God has emphasized the foundations of all his rests. Twelve layers of costly stones with the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb engraved upon them. Or he says, let me have an access to that city. That ought to stand all right with twelve foundations like that, didn't it? So this man knew what he was out for. He looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And then if you'll notice, it says in verse 13, a very strange thing about this faith. In the first case, faith is a receiver. We can even say, if you believe, you receive. Faith is the hand that is opened for God to fill it. But that's only one side. There is an aspect of faith where it is now willing to go without. That's a bit of a test, isn't it? That's the next step. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. You say, if they died in faith, they got them. Oh no. They saw them afar off. They were persuaded of them. And they embraced them. And it led them to confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And the worldly-minded man could have said, well, you're a strange person. You say you believe God. And you're worse off now than when you were living in Earth of the Chaldees. Says Abraham, all right, you carry on. Don't forget my little title deeds, will you? You see, have you got that thought? Have you got those title deeds? You can put up with the taunts of the enemy. You can pity him. For they that say such things, they declare plainly. They don't talk about it, of course. This means their actions. As one put it, the things you do make such a noise I can't hear what you say. You know that, don't you? So he says, they declare plainly that they seek a country. You couldn't help knowing Abraham in those days without knowing he got a far-off look sometimes. He was already there in spirit. And all the rest of it that would have worried him badly, he forgot. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from which they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. Goodness me, might have had. They'd have all the opportunity in the world. When Jonah ran away from God, he found a ship going to Tarshish. And he paid the fare thereof. When Paul, walking in the fear of the Lord, he found a ship and Rome paid the fare thereof. That's all, you see. Jonah paid his own fare. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country for whence they came out, they would have had the right opportunity right enough. The evil one will see to which you've got plenty of arguments, plenty of opportunities to show that you, oh, you were a little bit fanatical, you, you took it a bit too far, you, you were forgetting all your obligations to, go on, you see. Oh, yes, it's there. It's round us all the time. So you have to be a bit deaf like the adder. You have to have an eye that's focused upon things above so you let these things slip off. But now they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly. If you look further down this chapter, verse 35, 
Women receive their dead raised to life again. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. So there is a resurrection which belongs to every redeemed child of God. And there's a better resurrection to those who are looking for a better country. The things harmonise and walk together, you see. The better things. And then one more thing which is so comforting. God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. Pleasure being a citizen of a city, and every citizen will be there of whom God will not be ashamed. What a prospect before Abraham. Well now of course we're not dealing with our own calling. Our calling is higher still. For Christ ascended up far above all heavens that he might fit all things and we are reckoned to be seated together with him where he sits at the right hand of God. We're not mixing the callings. We're only trying to show that Abraham had an earthly calling that he couldn't forfeit if he wanted to. But he had a heavenly addition that he aspired unto by grace and will receive one day when the Lord returns. Now I think it would be good if you would supplement this tape recording by reading for yourself those two chapters in Revelation 2 and 3. For you there get an insistence upon the overcomer and the heavenly Jerusalem, and the paradise of God, and the reigning with Christ, which will supplement some of the things we've tried to bring out in this study of you see your calling, and this one, the heavenly one. By the Lord God unto us, that we may realise the wonder of redeeming love that gives us life in Christ, and then stoops to recognise the slightest move we make in response to his love and care, that he says he will not pass by without reward even that cup of cold water given in his name.